Well, who doesn't want a remedy for worry? I don't want to worry my life away, do you? God says that his promises can be the remedy to our fear, our anxiety, or just our longing for deeper meaning and purpose. As we've been going through the Fast Track series, we've learned God's promises and purposes is exactly that, a remedy for life. God began working with a family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and said, I got a promise for you to deal with all the challenges you're facing. And yet they end up in Egypt for like 400 years, wandering around for 40 years trying to find the remedy to life. Joshua leads them into the promised land, and again, they go through some ups and downs, and the judges aren't the remedy, though it helps them get to some mountaintops along the way. Then they say, well, maybe a king would be the remedy to life. If we could just have, you know, one of those kings, we we talked about Saul and David and Solomon. Then the kingdom gets divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They get conquered by Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians. And all along the way, God says, prophets and judges and kings and power are not the solution to life. I am. Here in Fast Track, let's, let's jump back eight years ago, back when Chad looked like a teenager, apparently, according to Ryan last week, and let's look at God's presence, God's connection as the remedy we need for everyday life. There are seasons in life when things get tough or things get challenging, and you wonder if God can be trusted, and you wonder if God will still run after you, even when you don't live up to your own standards, let alone His. I think about times in my life when I struggled, When I struggled with trusting God and wondering if he'd given up on me, it was that habit I couldn't break. was sitting the bench. I was the only junior in high school sitting the bench and everyone else was playing. It was when I got cut from the drama team. It's when in ninth grade I went through a depression. I wondered, is God there? Are my prayers just bouncing off the ceiling? What about those times that I wander away? What we're going to discover is that God is a God of connection. God is all about connecting. What's amazing is that it looks sometimes like there's no way into a situation. It looks like there's no way that God can break through. And God comes into that situation and says, I want to connect with you. I want to be with you in the midst of this. And we pull away from him. We say, no, God, I don't want your way, or I don't want to follow you, or I don't want to obey. And when you think God would give up on us, but he doesn't, he chases us down. And he connects with us as families and marriages. He connects with us when, when we again pull away and say, no, God, I don't want to be with you. There's a mystery to it. You know, as an illusionist for years, what I realized is there's many things that I understand doing a trick that the audience doesn't. I mean, it looks like these two rings are together, but I can make them melt right through each other. It looks like I have one ring, two rings, even three, but all of a sudden, I can change these two rings into a big mouse. You know, God in the Bible introduces himself as a trinity, three in one. And part of that three-in-one is that he is in relationship. The God, the Father, loves his Son. The Son loves the Holy Spirit. They are in community together. And because of that, they want to share that community with mankind. So God created mankind in his own image so he could share in the joy and the peace that he had. But many times, God says things or does things that we don't understand or, or that we don't like. I mean, listen to this. You can actually hear metal striking metal. And you might have a situation in your life, you say, there is no way for God to get in. But listen. Metal, right through metal. And there might be a situation where you say, I don't know if God can do anything here. I don't see any way out. Well, that doesn't look like there's any way out of these two rings. There's no way for them to get through. And then you call out to God. And you discover 
that though you gave up on God, he didn't give up on you. And you can't find a way out. It's the Red Sea moments in life. But instead, God finds a way to make an escape. It says in the Bible that every temptation we face, God will make a way of escape. So whatever the mystery is, whatever that area of life is that you don't totally understand what God's doing or why he's doing it, remember the illusionist. Remember that I don't always understand how an illusion is done, but that doesn't mean I give up on enjoying it. And the same thing is true of God. So God wants to connect us, not just to promises, but to himself, the giver of those promises. He wants us to experience peace. He wants us to know love. He wants us to have confidence to take on life. The problem is that life will kick you in the teeth, right? It'll punch you in the mouth. In fact, I had a good friend of mine just a few weeks ago was involved in this, this huge scam where he got lied to and cheated and manipulated. And I was angry on behalf of him. I was angry uh, at the people who did it. I was angry at the, the, the universe. And I was even angry at God. And I was frustrated. And I think that all of us are going to have those times, Right? that we're going to say things shouldn't go this way. We need a place to vent our concerns. And today in Fast Track, we're going to have a place to, to pound on God's chest when we get angry. In fact, as we've been looking through the Bible together, right, we just came through the time of the monarchs, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And things were very, very difficult during that time. And now the kingdom's been divided because Solomon was a tyrant. And God is gonna give us characters who can speak to the challenges of being conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And here's what we're gonna find. We're gonna find that God's chest, it's tough enough to beat on with whatever questions you have. All right, you've got questions, I've got questions. Why is God allowing this to happen? Can God really be good if this is happening to me or happening to someone I love? God's chest is tough enough to beat on with whatever questions we have. But his heart, his heart is soft enough to drop off our pain. And that's what's so powerful about this next section. These four characters have different levels of pain and questions and challenges, and yet they're gonna find a God who draws near to them and gives them promises that allow them to pound on God's chest with questions but also to drop off their pain. So today as we continue in Fast Track, let's look at those four characters together and the four promises he gives them in hopes that you can have that kind of confidence and really environment to be real with the maker of your soul, the maker of the universe. Let's look at our first character together. And the first one is a guy named Elijah. Now Elijah was a, a man who was very, very powerful. He was known as a leader in the community. He had led people in incredible new movements in life. And he is going to be at the top of his game. He is going to take on evil kings and evil queens. And he's going to bring hope where there was no hope at all. One of the things that strikes us about Elijah is that Elijah has some incredible mountaintop experiences. I mean, just unbelievable resume building moments. He's going to be a leader's leader. He's going to be top of his game. He's an incredible athlete. He's going to outrun a chariot. He's going to say to the foreign enemies, hey, let's say my God against your God. Give a little test. 
find out what happens at Mount Carmel. And yet, things will go incredibly well, but then he'll stumble. He'll stumble into depression. In fact, that's our key word really for Elijah as Elijah despairs. He goes from the top of the mountain, Mount Carmel is the name of this mountain that he's on, and he'll end up in a cave by himself, alone, scared, depressed, wondering if he's the only one left, wondering if God really is good, and wondering if his life can even have any meaning. Now what's striking about this is that Elijah is an athlete's athlete. He's a commander's commander. He's a leader's leader. And like I said, he will put on a championship of whose God really can come through. 400 prophets of Baal against him. They build an altar. He builds an altar. He covers his with water. Says whoever's God is real will answer by fire. And sure enough, they're all praying, cutting themselves, crying out to their God, no fire. Elijah prays one simple little prayer to a water-soaked altar and God sends fire from, sky, from the sky and burns up the altar, burns up the water and Elijah's like, hey, my God is real. Let's trust in him. To which immediately a question comes up, right? Like, Chad, do you really expect me to take the Bible seriously? You want me to believe that fire came down from heaven and burned that thing up? Great question. Now, Here's kind of the philosophical way of thinking about that. If God is real, right, premise one, then God ought to be supernatural. And if God is supernatural, that means typically there's a natural law to things and there's not a lot of fire coming out of the sky. But occasionally, if God is real and he's supernatural, he ought to be able to do some supernatural stuff, right? And supernaturally send fire to burn up an altar shouldn't be hard for someone supernatural. So it's actually philosophical consistent to think that a supernatural God could do supernatural things. And we have all kinds of archaeological and historical evidence to support the idea that the Bible is as reliable a historic document as any other document that's ever been written. So with that in mind, you might want to dig into that question together. But the way the Bible records the history with hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses, this was happening at Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel sounds like a location at like a, a, an old Dairy Queen commercial or something. You know, look at all the caramel oozing down in the fudge. It's actually a real place in history. In fact, I got a chance to visit there about six years ago. This is Mount Carmel in Israel. It's an actual mountaintop. I got to stand on the very place that Elijah built that altar. And after God answers with fire, he's like, everybody turn to God. And people just don't really respond the way he hoped. And they don't really think it's that big a deal. I mean, it was a big deal, but you know, what's kind of next? And he's going to tumble into a depression. In fact, he's going to be spiritually at a high point in his life. He's then going to have the evil king Ahab come to him and say, we're going to come get you. He's going to outrun the chariot of King Ahab, physically exhausted, top of his game, and all of that energy extended is going to tumble him into depression. And he's going to withdraw from friends, withdraw from neighbors, and he's going to run, run, run. In fact, the queen of the nation named Jezebel is going to say, I'm going to kill you tomorrow for taking on my prophets and taking on my gods. And this becomes just the straw that broke Elijah's back. 
He's going to leave his servant behind. He's going to wonder if his life matters. He's going to wonder if anyone cares about him because people didn't respond the way he hoped. He's going to find himself down here in Beersheba in a cave. So again, real places. A real person who if you saw him from the outside, you'd say, that guy's not pressed. That, that guy's not despairing. That guy's the happiest person I've ever met. In just the right amount of pressure and the right amount of time, he's going to tumble in Beersheba and find himself wandering into a cave. It's in this cave he's going to be incredibly, incredibly discouraged and depressed. In fact, he's going to start repeating in his head, God, I'm no better than my enemies. Take my life. Take my life. I'm no better than my forefathers. He starts comparing himself to the people. He starts realizing that things didn't turn out the way he hoped or thinks they should. And even though he's a household name, everybody would say, I wish I could be Elijah. He's despairing, pushed away the people he cares about, and is tumbling into depression. In the middle of all of that, God's going to show up. And God's going to show him in a really tangible way how to deal with his depression. Some physical remedies, some spiritual remedies, and some emotional remedies. In fact, if you've struggled with depression, or you know someone who struggled with depression, I did a whole series on Elijah's life that would be very helpful to really give you practical steps in detail on dealing with depression. If you go to our website and you type in horizoncc.com, click on media downloads, in the search engine you can type in playing with fire. And a series will come up we did back in 2014 and you'll see Elijah the confronter, Elijah's arch enemy, and gets into Elijah the depressed in ways in which God carefully and really delicately deals with somebody who's in despair. And maybe you need that in your own life or you need a source of God to be your source to help somebody who's depressed. I got the neatest note, an email recently from somebody who found community in the midst of despair. They found people who gathered around them when they were going through challenges. I want you to read you their story and just see how God can bring hope in the midst of a cave. Elijah's hiding out in that cave. He hasn't eaten well. He's exhausted. He's, he's emotionally distraught. This is from my friend, uh, friend Joan who said I could share this with you. Chad, I see that uh, the coming up message is about compassion. I have experienced a perfect example of how God showed compassion to us. My husband of 44 years is in nursing care. I have not seen him except through a window, touched or hugged him in over a year. Looking to downsize, I sold our home in February 2020 and temporarily moved in with my daughter, anticipating a very short stay. Then COVID hit and condos were selling too fast and a short stay turned into a year. But in late December of 2020, I was diagnosed with cancer. Weekly chemotherapy treatments began four days before Christmas. A month later, I finally closed in my new condo, one that had a lot more than I even had originally wished for. Enter compassion, defined as sympathetic consciousness of others distressed together with a desire to alleviate it. Through Horizons Tuesday morning women's small group, I have benefited from extraordinary compassion. God prepared the hearts of these women, sent them to my rescue because of the closeness that we have gained by sharing life and promises of God. So here's my challenge to pack up 16 years of belongings and memories and move them to my daughter's home. And a year later, everything needed to be moved to my new condo. 
Support from our study group and their constant prayers not only identified a condo coming available, but helped me through the process of selling and packing and purchasing and closing two moves, also meals and drivers taking me to chemo and orchestrating a schedule, organizing helpers and running errands, cleaning and running me through it all, and many, many prayers. And Bob was in a nursing home. His small group has moved in. They, they prayed for him. They met him outside the window. They organized cupboards and made my bed, all while caring for my need to rest and regain energy through weekly chemo cycles. God planned us to have community. See, God will ultimately offer a promise to anyone going through despair. God gives us strength in depression or despair. He really does. That God's going to show up in that cave with a promise. The angel of the Lord that we have discovered is Jesus, a theophany, as theologians call it, Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. And when he's despairing, he doesn't show up and say, Shame on you, get your act together. Shame on you, Elijah, you should you know, you know, not be so depressed. No, God is a wonderful counselor. Let me show you what he says here in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 7. Then, as Elijah lay and slept under the broom tree, Suddenly, an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. You know, you're not eating well. You've got to take care of your physical needs. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake. God baked him a cake. Baked on the coals and a jar of water. And a second time, the angel appeared to him and said, arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. And he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. God wants to give you the kind of spiritual sustenance, the food, the promises, the community to help you have the strength to continue your journey. Yet even then Elijah will go from that experience and stumble back into depression again in that cave. God will again show up. Say, listen, I love you. I'm here for you. It says God appeared to him in a still Small voice. Maybe God wants to give you strength through a still small voice. Through somebody who wants to remind you to eat well and to think well and to meditate on God's promises well. God will eventually give him a friend. Elijah has a friend named Elisha to put him back in community. To have people like Joan had to walk with her during difficult times. But that's what I want for you. Join a group so when you go through challenges, someone can help point you back to God, you know, someone you can beat on their chest with and help you know how to beat on the chest of God and a place to drop off your pain. So Elijah despairs. Let's look at our second character together. Our second character is a guy named Jonah. Maybe you've heard of him. He's known most for being swallowed by a whale or a great fish. So let's draw our our big fish here because this is what he's most known by, right? He was swallowed by a fish. But why? It's because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Right? So we'll make the eyeball for our, our whale the, uh, the, the star, the capital city of Nineveh. So why is it that Jonah hates Nineveh? He doesn't want to go to the capital city because it's the capital city of Assyria. That nation that conquered his people, that been been battling his people. Nineveh is the capital city of all of his enemies. And God loves his enemies. 
See, often people think the Old Testament is an angry God and then Jesus shows up and the New Testament is like, hey, sorry about my dad, you know, <laughs> I got something new to say. But actually the theme of the Old Testament is a God who loves being merciful. He loves being kind. He loves showing mercy. And the reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he's so scared that God will forgive his enemies and he doesn't want them forgiven. So he gets on a boat. And remember our map? When the northern kingdom gets divided, the Assyrians, big A here, the Assyrian empire conquered the northern kingdom. Jonah lives in the northern kingdom and God's saying, go tell those people who conquered you that they're doing some wrong stuff and they need to change, but I wanna forgive them. He's like, I don't wanna forgive them. So instead of going, all the way over to Assyria, he runs over towards Spain in a place called Tarshish. Meanwhile, big storm hits and they end up, the, the people on the boat care more about him than he cares about them. And he's like, no, just throw me overboard, blub, 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 blub. And he gets swallowed by a fish. Now again, you might say, Chad, again, how in the world do you expect me to take the Bible seriously if you believe a fish swallowed a guy? Well, again, we covered all of these questions in a series we did at the equipping service just about four weeks ago, starting in January of 2021. Go to our website, look up Jonah. I covered all of that in detail, historic, literary, and philosophical reasons you might wanna look into. So according to the book of Jonah, he gets swallowed by a whale, turns him back around, spits him back on shore, and now he's reluctantly uh, heading back to Nineveh. Now, he gets there and we find the main point of the book because God does forgive his enemies and he's angry. He says, God, that's exactly what I thought you were gonna do. And he leaves the city of Nineveh, sits outside of it and pouts, God, I wish I was dead. Kill me now, God, if you're gonna make me live in a world where my enemies are forgiven. God provides a plant for him to give him shade from the heat Thank you, God, for relieving me of the consequences of this heat. That God sends this little worm to come and chew up the vine and it dies. And he's like, oh, this is so ridiculous. I have to put up with this heat. And God says, Jonah, it feels good to not have to suffer the consequences of the actions around you, right? And you were thankful for a plant you didn't plant and a worm you didn't make. Shouldn't I show pity and compassion toward the 120,000 people who are made in my image. Yes, they're doing wrong things, but they can't tell their left hand from their right hand. And Jonah, I want you to learn how to see people the way I see people. See, God offers enemy loving compassion to you and to me. I have a friend of mine who's been attending our church for the last couple, really decades, and he heard me give a message about forgiving your enemies. And he was really bothered by it. I talked about one of the unique perspectives of the Bible is you befriend people that you totally disagree with. And he didn't mind barely tolerating them, but the idea of being called to love people you hate, love people you consider your enemies, whether because they hurt you in the past or they disagree with you politically or they come to different conclusions on parenting. They're just wrong. 
and he felt very self-righteous in his anger. He got done listening to a message one day I gave on befriending your enemies with this enemy-loving compassion. And he was so angry, he went to the grocery store and just kind of was fuming. And specifically in his case, it was a political issue. He considered himself a progressive, and he just saw all conservatives as evil. And he just couldn't imagine that he would be called as a Christian to love people who believe things that he didn't believe. And I said, we don't have to agree with people politically on either side. I mean, Jonah does not believe politically with what's going on in Nineveh. But he's called to love them, to befriend them, to communicate and express to them the, the compassion love of God. And it took uh, about four months before this guy came back to me. And he's like, you know what? I just realized I have been so indoctrinated by our culture to hate and to hate people who are different from me. I talk about tolerance all the time, but I realize I'm not practicing that kind of tolerance. Well, that's that promise God has for us. God wants all of us, especially in our culture today, that that divides us and demonizes us and and calls the other group of whatever it is an enemy on everything, to do what Jesus said, to love your enemies and pray for those even that persecute you. The last statement in Jonah is God saying, hey, I want to give you love, enemy-loving compassion. Should I not pity Nineveh with its 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right and all their livestock? Jonah, I even care about their animals. That's how soft my, my heart is. And I get it that this is difficult. Pound on my chest if you wonder why I can love my enemies, but I love you too. And drop off your pain. Let me be the judge so you can experience forgiveness. So that's our second character. Our third character is a guy named Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah laments and lament is kind of a fancy word but it means to cry out in pain and and for good reason he cries out. In fact I remember going through a difficult time in uh, in life our first couple years of marriage some, some health issues with my wife. I was very angry at God and I found myself in the book of Lamentations. So it's two books in the Bible written by Jeremiah One is called Jeremiah, the other is called Lamentation, where he laments, pounds on God's chest with questions, and he says, God, why have you targeted me for pain? It feels like the universe and you is purposely out to get me. There is a bullseye on my life, and you are pulling out of the quiver of your resources arrows that you're shooting at me. Remember, his nation is being crushed, northern and southern kingdom, by both Assyria, and then the Babylonians will show up, and they will crush the Assyrians, and they will crush the southern kingdom. And Jeremiah is primarily going to be speaking to those in the southern kingdom who have been crushed by, slaughtered by the kingdom of Babylon. And he is going to see the carnage and the difficulty, and the death around him, and he is going to say, God, I don't understand this. God, this doesn't seem right. And I remember when I read this, when I was in my 20s, I felt like Jeremiah's cheerleader. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. Yes, that's that you couldn't have said it better in the book of Lamentations. Here's a couple little things from chapter one and two. I am the man who has seen affliction, God. By the rod of your wrath, it's like you're pounding on me. 
He, God, has led me and made me walk in darkness, not in light. Surely you, God, have turned your hand against me. You've aged my flesh and my skin. You've broken my bones. Whew, some tough words. He, God, has besieged me, surrounded me with bitterness. And woe, he has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made me chain, my chains are heavy in life. Even when I cry and shout, oh my goodness, God seems to just shut out my prayers. Pretty grim, right? But what kind of a relationship must he have with God that he keeps calling him my God? That in the midst of this, he still trusts that his God's chest is, is tough enough. He can beat on this. He can drop off his pain with God because God's chest is big enough to beat down with questions and soft enough to drop off your pain. Even in the midst of this pain, he's actually talking to God. He's praying to God in the midst of this, right? So what does it mean to trust in God when you're going through incredibly difficult circumstances? I saw an interview recently with Greg Ellis, the tight end for the Cowboys, and he talked about this career-ending injury. I mean, when he was... When he was at the top of his career, you probably remember the, the story, he suddenly has this just career-ending moment where they like, we're going to go hire your replacement, and they did. And he said he had to have some soul-searching. I mean, this was his career. This was his life. This is how he's going to make money, right? He's like, God, you took it all away. My whole life, my whole plan. But he trusted in Christ. He said he was a follower of Jesus, and he said, you know what? My identity is not in the thing I love, though I love it. It's not in my performance, though I've had a great run of performance. He said, God, I want you to help me find my identity in you. And I hope I get better. I'm going to work to get better. I'm going to pray to get better. And he poured out his questions and his thoughts and his doubts on God. And he said, God, whatever happens, I'm going to trust in you. As you probably remember, the replacement didn't get a lot of playing time he came back after that injury and miraculously had one of the best career years ever and he said the secret to that was while he was going through difficulty meditating on thinking about what it meant to have his identity not in his career not in his performance but in the person of Jesus now, this is very similar to the promise that Jeremiah has because what's so fascinating, I remember this reading this when I was in my 20s. Jeremiah chapter one, chapter two, bam, bam, you've targeted me, you quiver, it's shut up my prayer, blah, 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 blah. He gets to chapter three and in the middle of all this kind of bitterness outrage, vomiting out of him, here's what he says in chapter three, verse 20. And I will never forget sitting on the top of my apartment building reading this. Here's what it says. This is our next promise. Chapter three, verse 20. This I recall to mind. This I think about when I'm going through this. And therefore I have hope. God offers you hope in the middle of despair, hope in the middle of lament. Okay, okay what did he recall to mind that gave him hope? Here it is. The Lord's mercies are new every morning and we are not consumed. So though the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. God still has mercy for me, doesn't give me everything I deserve, still has compassion for me, it doesn't fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy 
faithfulness. Did you ever hear that song in church growing up? Great is thy faithfulness. That song comes out of the book of Lamentations. That in the middle of all of his anger and bitterness and lamenting and despair, he says, but in, even in all of this truthful frustration, God, I recall this to mind. You're still merciful. You're still compassionate. And your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Very similar to the promise of our fourth character. A guy named Habakkuk. And Habakkuk wrestles. He wrestles with God. In fact, it's a very similar story and application to Jeremiah. Jeremiah laments and Habakkuk wrestles. He climbs up into a watchtower, which is kind of a fancy term for a tower that you might overlook a vineyard. And he just is up in that tower like, God, I'm wrestling with why are you having this happen to me? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And now we've moved into, on the, on the big front, Habakkuk is speaking during a time that the Persians have come and conquered the Babylonians. And so here's the, the poor Israelites are kind of like, you know, fodder being drug around from empire to empire to empire. And specifically Habakkuk is like, why did you let Babylon put so much carnage into our life? And God's gonna say, listen, if I told you what I'm doing, you wouldn't understand it. Because there's an even worse country coming named Persia, and they're evil, the Medes and Persians, and I'm gonna use them to pay the Babylonians back for their injustice. What, and he, now he's back in the watchtower, like pounding, like what in the world are you talking about? How can that be right? So if you're drawing along with us, so we're gonna draw a watchtower. So we think of a watchtower, just you know, think of like a turret, maybe of an old, uh, kingdom, but it basically was just a, a tall place you could walk up to, and we'll put a watch on it just to remember it's a watchtower. And he found himself up here just, you know, talking, talking to God, laying out his concerns, laying out his frustrations. And the whole book of Habakkuk is Habakkuk in this watchtower saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. He says things like this, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, it's a burden to see what's happening in this world. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, look at the violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Guys, I, I don't get it. But God gives him a promise. It's a great book to read, by the way, if you're ever wrestling with questions. You need to pound on God's chest a bit. God says, I'm gonna get justice in the end. Oh, you may not see it during the time of Babylon or you may not see it during the time of the Medes and Persians, but you can trust me that I will eventually bring about justice. And that's the secret really to forgiveness and really dealing with life and all of its ups and downs and brokenness is you, know, you, may, you work toward justice now, but ultimately you trust that God will eventually reward good and punish evil. And that gives you the freedom to trust someone's in control around here because it doesn't feel like anybody's in control. And I can forgive others because God holds people accountable and I don't have to carry the bitterness around of unforgiveness. And the promise he gives it back is pretty amazing. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write this down so everyone in the future has this promise. Write it on a plane on the tablets that he may run who reads it 
The vision is yet for an appointed time. The time I bring about justice is in the future yet, but I will bring it at the end. It will not lie. Though it tarries, it's taking longer than I thought, taking longer than I wanted. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. This becomes a theme picked up in the New Testament. In fact, the book of Romans, Paul will say, the secret to life is people living by faith. Trusting, I don't get it right now, it's happening, but I'm gonna trust that God knows what he's doing and he's gonna work out his purposes eventually. And though it tarries, I'm waiting for it, trusting that God is in charge. It's powerful and it brings so much freedom into your life. So let's pick a promise. I don't know which promise it is for you, but what's one of those promises we looked at that maybe you want to look at? What does it look like for you to maybe wrestle with God during despair or during uh, challenges or during you know, hatred toward other people or during wrestling? What is a promise you can hold on to while you're wrestling with God? Four of them. Maybe you're struggling with sadness and you want to find hope. Maybe you want to write this promise down. Put it on a, on a, on a mirror or a three by five card. God says, listen, I'm not going to shame you for feeling discouraged. The journey, journey's been too great for you. The Lord was not in the fire. God wants to speak to you through a still, small voice. That might be your promise. Maybe it's God wants to challenge you to have pity, to have compassion. Where? In Nineveh. Where more than 120,000 people can't tell their left hand from the right. And maybe you want to pray that God will help you see someone you're really angry at through his eyes. Maybe that promise is, God, I want to have hope in my circumstances and I want to meditate or recall to mind that you are faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Or maybe it's that last promise, that though it tarries, wait for it. There is something so powerful about having an environment where you can ask questions, bring your doubts. You're not judged that people come around you, whatever you're facing, whatever you're up against, and help escort you along the way. I've had a good friend, my friend Liz, who I've been walking with on this journey maybe for 15, 20 years. And I recently got the opportunity to interview her and just show how she's wrestled with God in Community at Horizon and how the small group she's been involved in, the group of women around her and the environments of our, our weekend services going back 15 years, create a place for her to wrestle with God and find promises she needed. Let's watch her story together. I had um, gone to church pretty much as a a little girl and all through um, high school. And then when I got off to college, um, wasn't going as often, kind of strayed. But then with having children and getting married and all of those things, I kept on church hopping to different places and nothing felt like it was a good fit for me. There was nothing I could walk away with that uh, could help me with the things I was struggling with in my life. You know, and I would meet these girlfriends that, you know, they love going to church, they were excited about it. And, And I would say to them things like, well, what are you doing there? Because, you know, I'm not really getting anything out of it. There must be something wrong with me. And, uh, and, 
that was a point in my life where I said, you know, I'm just, I've got to keep trying. And then I would drive down the road and I'd see this sign for, about Horizon, you know, come and ask all the stupid questions and everyone's welcome. Kind of that first time I had heard the theme, come as you are. After a few weekends, I'd come home all excited and telling Casey what I learned and the different services and things. And all of a sudden he wanted to go with me. Like, whoa, whoa, you want to come to church with me? Wow. Um, but he just made me promise I wouldn't stay for like the coffee and cookies afterwards because he didn't want to talk to a bunch of new strange people. And I'm like, well, that's the part I really like because, you know, I want to connect with people. And, and that's how I actually ended up in those coffee hours. I made him stay, of course. Uh, we're in one car, so he had to stay. I trapped him. Um, that's how I learned about the women's Bible studies. And I just took a leap and said, this is a like baby Christian class, okay? And there was that welcome that you had, it said, you know, come and ask the stupid questions. So I'm like, okay, I've been, I've got a lifelong list I've been keeping track of, stories I don't believe that seem insane, things that were getting in my way. But I just said, I'm gonna do it. And it was in a nice, safe environment at one of the church members' homes. And that sense of community and friendship just kept building and building and they taught me how to pray, which was one of the sweet things that was I was very um, unsure of. But along with that, they taught me how to use my Bible and to get the things out of it that I would need at you know, different challenging times in my life. And when I couldn't find something right away, they were there to help me quickly uh, find those things. And that proved to be very important for what was coming in my life that I didn't know it was going to be happening. But what I really got out of those Bible studies and coming to church on the weekends was that um, I was welcome to go at my own pace. I didn't feel pressure. You know, I'm struggling in my faith. You know, I, I'm trying to hide. I need to be um, under the radar for a while. I don't want any commitments yet. Um, I need to go at this at my own pace, and that's what Horizon gave me. And that's what those dear friends did. Uh, and, and one of the most beautiful things about one of my Bible studies was when my brother tried to kill himself. And um, there was one specific, well, these ladies all had had, everybody had signed something happen. You could get wisdom from any of these gals at any time. And it wasn't selfish. There was no um, agenda. It was just very genuine. And I also knew it was private. I really trusted that. Um, and that was important, very important, because it was sharing things that were obviously very painful. Um, my brother did, you know, get through that horrible time, and, and I was. They, these gals gave me so many beautiful scriptures to find in my Bible, because, you know, I'm a baby Christian here, you know. I, like, basically, I look at the glossary in the back, and it says depression or parenting, you know, and then I go to this. But I felt like these gals could give me all these verses right away. I had the tools I needed right away, and that was so valuable to me. And I ended up, a few years later, my brother kind of got things all straightened up and ironically died in a canoe accident. I needed to do the eulogy for my family. And uh, my parents wanted it to be a Christian burial, but they didn't know anything about the Bible. And um, at the time, we were studying the book of Daniel. 
Um, but it was those same gals that um, helped carry me through that difficult time. They were there for me on a level that no one else could really be, really. Not even my husband or my parents. No one could give me what they were able to give me. And I still look back at the words that I wrote that morning because I wrote it at 4 a.m. because I just didn't know what to say. And I felt like I that Bible, it was just like God was like flipping my hand to everything I needed. It was so powerful. But I wouldn't have that strength or confidence or know-how to do that if those, they taught me that, those friends. No matter what comes before me, what challenges, what giants, um, I know I'm going to be good because I have my faith. I know that Jesus died for me. He was raised and um, I'm forgiven. You know, he has taken all the sin and the shame or mistakes that I could possibly make and I'm set free from those things. That's what I think being a Christian is, is really understanding the sacrifices that were made and really understanding that I am forgiven and I am gonna make mistakes and I'll ask for forgiveness and I'll get back on the right path because no one's perfect, but uh, it's, it's a very patient and loving journey.